This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. For many of us, this is the first time in three days that we are back to work. Uh, that's right. Hopefully, you had a, a great Memorial Day weekend. Uh, had a chance to relax a bit. Had a chance to uh, unwind a bit. And of course, I hope you uh, did spend some time remembering the incredible sacrifice that uh, the men and women that have died in the service of our country have made over the course of the history of this country. I was yesterday, the place where I usually am, I'll give you some more details about it in uh, in a minute, but I was at the Memorial Day Parade on Staten Island on Forest Avenue, and I usually am there just about every year. And I remember about 17 years ago, a fellow that walked in that parade behind me was greeted like a, a conquering hero in that part of Staten Island because folks said that he was going to rescue the Democratic Party in New York from some of the extremists. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? And maybe even rescue New York City from an out-of-touch billionaire. Now, he didn't end up becoming mayor, but uh, his time in the public spotlight was only going to get brighter and uh much more pronounced from that point on. That person was former Democratic congressman, former two-time Democratic candidate for mayor, Anthony Weiner, uh, who is our newest colleague here at 77 WABC as the host of the Anthony Weiner Show, Saturday afternoons at 2 p.m., and I am just thrilled that he's agreed to join me at 1 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. Good morning. Good morning, Frank. It's great to be here. You know, I've heard a great deal about the show. I have to confess... I frequently am listening to it in podcast form or listening to it on the Red Apple Podcast Network. But being up here and seeing all of the gang here at WABC, it's great to be here. And I've heard, uh, you know, I, I listen to your show as kind of an example of a how-to do radio. No and wonder so you're struggling so much. It is great to be here. It's great to be here. And and I'm a bit jealous of you being out on the rock for the uh, Memorial Day Parade. It was, it's a great parade. And they really do take it very seriously. And it's a combination of existing men and women who are in uniform, but they also always keep in mind what Memorial Day really is. It's supposed to be kind of a very meaningful day for us. And even more so now than ever, because, you know, as we have these pitch fights politically, Mm -hmm. we all should keep in mind that the reason that we have the ability to do that is that our democracy is strong and that our country is strong. And that is because of the sacrifice of so many. But it's really I'm, I'm excited to be here and also excited to have um, to have a program here on WABC, as you know, Curtis and I have been doing a program for the next last three months or so, left versus right, and uh, he's another person who's a real New York institution. I've learned a lot about radio from listening to him and by being on the show with him, and I'm looking forward to. It. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Well, that's wonderful. As you've, the, I've seen the ratings; they're through the roof. So, congratulations on that. We are going to take calls throughout the hour if people want to call in. Uh, and again, if people disagree with anything Anthony's saying, not that he needs me to protect him. You know, just agree politely. You don't have to uh, scream or anything. And that goes for people on the left and the right, by the way. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. So it sounds like you're really enjoying this so far. Well, I am. I mean, I'm doing things, you know, I'm trying to do a couple of things at once. You know, one, I, I recognize that we are 
here at WABC a right-leaning audience, but we're also, I think I have this theory. The theory of my case is, and you've heard me describe it and people who listen to the show have heard this before, is that we sometimes chase our tail pursuing mm. the viewpoints of the far left and the far right. And that's true within the parties. Our Democratic Party is, I think, largely concerned about a primary from the left and the AOC wing of our party, which I would probably say back in my day when I was in Congress would probably say I was one of those progressives. Mm -hmm. But now the party has moved a great deal. And it's also true on the on the right, where Republicans seem very, very concerned about the 10 percent who are on their far fringe. But I think the show that I'd like to do is to talk to the other 80 mm -hmm. percent, the people who are strongly partisan but open to new ideas and open to having debates. So and I think that's a, a laudable goal. And I try and do that to some extent uh, on, on this show you as do. well. But when you, how do you with that goal in mind to talk to the 80 percent, not the 20 percent on either side of the spectrum that are unpersuadable and some would say their critics would say irredeemable? How do you find the solo hour that you're doing from two to three versus the hour with Curtis that you're doing three to four? Which do you find uh, better serves the furtherance of that goal? Well, it's, they, they both do so in different ways. When I do an hour, what I've stro striven, strove, what do we say at one o'clock in the morning when you're <laughs> trying to find your vocabulary? What I strive to do. I, I, I strive for a synonym. <laughs> what, I, what I strive to do is to take an issue. That has been reduced to a hot take or a bumper sticker throughout the week. You know, one of the real challenges that you have, and I admire the way you do it, is you've got a lot of time to fill. And very often, news is happening in real time. And mm -hmm. we have a great newsroom here that, that will tell us about the news, but you have to comment on it in real time. I, because I'm on at the end of the week, at the beginning of the week, however you, 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 you perceive it, I get a chance to let things marinate a little bit. And what I try to do is I try to go a little bit deeper. If people are talking about the Hunter Biden laptop, I try to really look deeply into it, learn some things about it, able to answer questions, able to have a conversation about it. Immigration, uh, the the baby formula shortage, whatever it might be, go much deeper. Then on left versus right with Curtis, we come on at 3 o'clock on Saturdays. There we have conversations that further the debate in another way, in that we show that civility is not completely lost. Mm. We sometimes disagree. Sometimes we agree. What we sometimes are expressions of the notion that in municipal politics or municipal governance, there really is no Republican way to collect the garbage. Like Curtis and I, we've both been candidates for mayor. We understand what it's what it's like to go out and deal with the issues and try to persuade others. And we have a very good relationship. We have for years. So what the other way that I further the debate or we further debate during that hour is to show that you can have debates. Now, that is uh, that is nice. It's funny. I was listening my wife's family all lives out on Long Island, and we were listening to you and Curtis, uh, first you solo and then you and Curtis, uh, maybe three or four weeks ago. And um, even my wife, who's a pretty tough critic, especially of me, she remarked, uh, boy, you know, Anthony Weiner's really good on the radio. For someone that's never really done this, except as a fill-in and as a guest, uh, you really, I think, are, are doing a good job. And in, in her view, you are as well. Now, I don't have, um, you know, any interest in going through the substance of your your scandals because, you know, you've kind of done it to death on three separate occasions over the course of the last 11 years. I am curious, though, this audience can be tough, right? They're tough on me when I say I vote for a Democrat. Uh, I can imagine and I know because when you joined the station, I was inundated with a lot of callers who said, you know, who took issue that you had a conviction for, you know, for a sex crime and things like that. How have the listeners reacted, not necessarily to your politics, but to your scandals and to your criminal history? Do you get the sense that most of the people listening 
are willing to listen to you as somebody that's paid your dues and learned from your past mistakes? Or do you get the sense that there's a lot of people on the left or the right or non-political that are never going to give you an opportunity because of your previous issues? Well, the short answer is yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you find both? <laughs> to all of those things. And look, people can look at my things through a lot of different prisms. And to some degree, I'm a Roy Satch test because – on one hand, of someone who's dealt with addiction, who's been who's been in recovery for a while, I think a lot of people have experience in their families that are difficult, that are challenging. Um, some hit bottoms that weren't as low as mine. Some had much worse bottoms than mine. So to some degree, my what I have tried to do, and I have said this a few times when asked about it, you know, the word recovery comes from the notion of going back and recovering the things that you've done, good and bad, and reaching a point where you no longer – you lo- no longer, I guess, regret your past. You will come to understand it and realize that it brought me to this place here today. So a lot of people call with a great deal of empathy about that notion. Some of it even ask, whenever I have conversations about my background and my downfall and my, my dealings with mental illness and my family, the board fills up with people who want to know a little bit more about that. And, it, and I, as I have told the audience at some point, I'll do that as a show just to let people. And maybe this is the time if someone wants to call and ask about that. But I think that if someone says, look, I don't believe in the notion of redemption or I don't believe the notion of paying your dues, one, I, there are many differences between me and other people that you might read about. I never denied responsibility. I accepted responsibility. I pled guilty. I didn't demand a trial. I stood before the bar of justice well, and said that it never. Way. I mean, early on, you know, well, there was some denial. No, no, right? early. Oh, denial about yeah. my problems. Oh, for sure. I was in complete denial and misdirection and gaslighting of my wife, of my family, of my public, of my constituents and everything else. But I'm saying that that I reached a point where um, where I basically came to accept it, that I, I, I needed to accept responsibility. And, and I do. And I'm still in the process of making amends, to be honest. And for better or for worse, here I am. And if someone wants to call in and say, look, I don't believe you've done enough or you need to do more, that's a perfectly reasonable position to have. I will say this, though. If you believe in the criminal justice system, if you believe in the notion of doing your time, doing your probation, doing your three years of supervision, doing your time in prison, no one – you know, I, I was found I was found guilty of obscenity. That's perfectly reasonable if you think that was – you know, I accept responsibility – but at a certain point, then what? If right, you, it's not a life sentence. Well, yes, if you believe that someone is never entitled to ever see the light of day again or ever be able to work again or walk in the streets again. But that's not on me. All I can do is be as transparent and honest about this, and I think that people who have called may have been taken aback by the fact that I'm not running. I'm, if someone believes uh, believes the worst about me, I've given them plenty of fodder for that. Mm. I certainly have, Frank. And so if someone wants to you know, say that, I'd let them down. I mean, um, Lydia on, on this on this station, every time I'm on with her, reminds me that Bill de Blasio is the mayor because I screwed up. That's true. I've got to accept responsibility for that, too. But long story short, people can view me through whatever prism that they want. I think that they have found that I'm not – even if they're called up to tell me I'm a jerk, I'll put them on the air and let them say that. Um, and then we got to get on with uh, having a discussion about the issues of the day, and a lot of people want to do that too. We're talking with former Congressman Anthony Weiner. You can hear him every Saturday here at WABC from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. You want to comment on anything that we're talking about, 800-848-WABC. We're going to discuss some politics and some of the big problems that the country, the city, and the state are facing, 800-848-9222. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you go on social media at all these days, but I promoted that you were going to come on today on 
my Facebook page, and a whole bunch of listeners basically said in words or substance, oh, I'll skip this show, I'll sleep through this one, I'll tune to XYZ Station uh, because you have that such and such on this time around. But I've seen the streaming numbers that you and Curtis are doing, and it's almost leading the weekend. Do you get the sense that a lot of listeners are sort of lying about not listening, that they're, that they're claiming just to sort of be insulting that they're not listening, when in actuality, clearly somebody's listening? Well, I, I don't, I don't, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's this whole idea of preaching to the choir, you know, to some degree. I think that the people that we're talking to during my show at two o'clock and the show I do with Curtis at three o'clock, they're the ones tuning in. They're the mm-hmm. ones that are engaged. They're the ones who want to have this conversation. We've seen that people who are not only listening, but they're listening for more for longer blocks of time. But again, it's I've given people lots of reason to say, oh, I've had enough of this guy. Um, but I also, over the course of 25 some odd years in public life, have given people a lot of reasons to believe I have something to say. Uh, I stood for, I, you know, I, I had a job that was that was mentioned in the Constitution of the United States of America. I was a New York City councilman, as you mentioned. I'd run for mayor a couple of times. Um, I don't believe that anyone is only the worst thing that mm. they've they've done in their life. I've got a lot of experiences to bring to bear on it, and maybe some people are hate listening, Frank. Maybe they are like just I want to listen just so I can gnash my teeth at that guy Anthony Weiner. But m- m- all I can do is every week give people an opportunity to tune in. And to hear, and I'm not yelling at anyone. I'm not the guy that was was fighting with Peter King on the floor of Congress. I'm a little bit. I think I'm like everyone is. After time, you become different. I've got a lot of experiences under my belt. But as far as who's listening and what experience they're getting, one of the reasons I was eager to join you is it's another audience that mm. maybe I don't get a chance to talk to, and maybe people will judge me differently. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that you know a change from the Anthony Weiner of 2010, and I just rewatched that clip this weekend. And it's funny, if you were to have asked me, and people did occasionally ask me to to describe my opinion of you before your scandal, and even right up until 2013, my response would have been, you know, you're somebody that's incredibly intelligent, that's a, a real fighter. And that's incredibly arrogant. That was always my perception, whether it's uh, right or wrong. Do you do you think that you've been humbled going through this this process, genuinely humbled and maybe not the guy that would uh, I'll use the term grandstand with Peter King on a, on a, in the manner in which you did on the floor of the House of Representatives? Yeah, I mean. I might quibble with the notion of grandstanding. I mean, that was a moment of genuine anger. I was tired. He was tired. And... Okay, but that's, that's one issue. But right, you have but click, I, but click I, and clack on I know, NPR. But, oh, right? I, I thought I was excellent on that, actually. Frank. But <laughs> look, I mean, I, I always thought that of all of the odd, all the odd adjectives to ascribe to a politician, maybe second in irony only to ambitious is arrogant. I mean, by very d- – definition, someone who stands for office, who has the audacity to say, I should represent 750,000 people because I alone have the wherewithal to do it and I'm smarter than ever. Politicians are like that. And I was a politician. I no longer am. But the shorter answer to your, to your question is I am a different person because of these experiences that laid me low. And I think well, I'll leave it to someone else to say whether I'm better or, for, or worse. Sometimes I think, you know, when I have people who stop me in the street and says, we want the old Anthony Weiner back. Well, there's no such thing as the old Anthony Weiner anymore. This is who I am today. And I think it makes me a better person for radio because there's a lot of people on radio who are yelling at you at, the, at this point. Mm-hmm. Our political debate is full of split screens of two people yelling at one another. What I'd like to do this iteration of me 
has a lot more self-awareness. Um, and I have to admit, when I go back and do what you did this weekend and take a look at old tapes of myself, I cringe a little bit. Not because I was wrong on the issues necessarily, but because I didn't have a sufficient amount of self-doubt that I think would make a better politician. You know, someone who mm-hmm. – and you know, I think probably makes a better talk show host, the ability to say, you know what, you're right about that. Um, but let me just say, say one other thing on that. You know, I would go on. I was very popular not only on the left, left-leaning TV stations but also on Fox News. And I would always go on Fox News whenever they asked, much to the chagrin of Nancy Pelosi, who was the leader at the time and still is today. And I enjoyed that back-and-forth fighting. But I'll tell you something else. When a producer books you in this modern society to go on as a politician— It's not for a lot of nuance. It's not for nuance, and yeah. it's not— I get it. They don't want to hear that you agree with the other guy. Right. Oh, it's I get quite it. the opposite. Conflict is what is in, in, in demand, and I provided it in spades. I don't think I was particularly helpful, and I hope hopefully this version of me— whether with the Anthony Weiner show or on Left versus Right with Curtis or coming on this evening with you, I think, frankly, the debate benefits more from that today than the other version. Uh, and that's really the refreshing aspect of uh, of change that from the status quo is that uh, it's okay to say the other guy has a point. Uh, we're going to take your calls in a second. Two open lines if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. And it's actually one of the real reasons that I so admire our boss, John Katsimatidis, because I don't see a lot of other radio stations, and I don't mean to put it this way, but giving someone like you uh, with your public profile an opportunity. If you look at our lineup, and I have no interest in reiterating our whole lineup's array of scandals, but it, we're almost like the you know, the bad news bears from top to bottom, except for James Golden. I don't think there's one person on our station that hasn't had some degree of public disgrace. And, um, you know, Al Davis from the Raiders made that a a way of, of running a successful football franchise. And I think John is doing the uh, the same thing here. Now, aside from the scandal, I could see a lot of listeners taking issue with your politics. Right. Uh, I've known. A lot of uh, far left and center left people that have been on this station over the years. The station's always been conservative. But um, these days, it definitely seems that uh, a big portion of the audience leans to the right. I, you know, I've seen Ron Kuby try to navigate this. I've seen Richard Bay try and navigate this. Lynn Samuels, a lot, Alan Combs, a lot of others. How have you found it to be speaking to people that you know, many of whom, disagree with you politically have you had to reframe your arguments in if you were talking to an msnbc crowd or something like that it's a great question and this is where the difference uh from me to those other people you listed is that for years for seven terms i served a constituency here in new york that was fairly conservative you know i represented literally um uh, archie bunker's home in glendale mm. i was in glendale middle village the rockaways and so i I frankly honor the idea that there are a lot of people in my constituency and a lot of people within the sound of our voice that disagree with me. I do proceed with some basic things. One, I believe that people are functioning in good faith. I don't believe that there are evil people out there who want our Mm. country to fall apart and everything. And so when someone calls in and says they disagree or has a point to make, I can usually find something in that call that I agree with. Like, I'm not saying I agree with their premise or I agree with their conclusion, but I can usually find something I, I, can, re- I can agree with. And I remember when Obamacare passed and I was in Congress and I was a big supporter. I was even further, t- I, I, I believe in single payer health care, but I was a big supporter of Obamacare. 
And right. Nancy Pelosi gave you the ball, right? The baseball. Well, yeah, actually, Nancy Pelosi. When I, when it was time to drop the gavel on that, I was in the chair. I, I uh-huh. because I, I, I was the presiding officer. Um, and um, but then during that period of time, I don't know if you remember, it was so controversial that literally members of Congress were being hounded mm-hmm. out of town hall meetings. And I remember Nancy Pelosi put out a memo saying that going into the election, we were going to get rolled in 2010. She said, don't do public events. Do as few as possible while you're home for recess. And I did 13 town hall meetings all throughout my district. I went in the opposite direction. And they were contentious. But I believe that ultimately people like the idea and appreciate the idea that even if you disagree with them, if you stand up and you'll have a conversation and you'll have a debate – that they kind of honor you for that. That's the American way. And so I bring that same spirit in to the radio show. But I, if, but if someone says something that I believe is wrong, I will say it. But look, but I'll, and, and I'll, I'll add one final thing. I was probably, when I retired from Congress, had to resign in 2011 because of my scandal, I was probably in the, probably the more progressive 15 or 20 percent of, of the Democratic Party. Today, as I sit here, I probably, if I were to go run in that 10th congressional mm-hmm. district, would be to the right of the field. So I think that I am not the caricature Democrat that a lot of people believe they're going to get when they tune in. And maybe some of the callers today will learn that. You know, it's funny. Uh, governor Patterson was a good friend of mine before he became governor, before he became lieutenant governor. And uh, when he was a state senator in uh, in Albany, he had a pretty progressive voting record. Then once he became governor and he's faced with the realities of governing, he had a very, very different style of governing. In fact, he always talks about one instance where he actually vetoed a piece of legislation that passed that he was a sponsor of when he was a senator. And I really found that Governor Patterson's experience on WOR, then on 970 and now on this station, and I think he's admitted this and he he listens. He's probably listening right now. His experience dealing with conservative listeners has forced him to have a much broader perspective than he did when he was only worried about catering to voters and to donors. And he's said that his views have evolved on a few different issues after thinking about it from a conservative listener perspective and talking about it with conservative callers. I know you've only been doing this, you know, since basically February, but have you found that at all? Have you found that your views have actually evolved on any specific issues because of your exposure to a lot more right-leaning Vox Populi? Uh, I mean, look, I haven't had moments of epiphany, but I I understand and I spend a lot of time listening to the other the other shows, including yours. I, I, I understand that our process does benefit or does be harmed by the notion of the siloing of information that we get access to. And I did a show uh, a few weeks ago about Twitter, and we're not big – our listeners are not big users of Twitter. But I was trying to make the point that social media has accelerated something that John Katsimatidis and Chad Lopez and others here are trying to push against, which is the idea of we only get exposed to the viewpoint that we want to mm. hear. If someone is listening to my show or the show that you do or the show that I do with with Curtis Lewa, to some degree, they're open to a conversation. They're not open only to a diatribe. And so those conversations have been enlightening to me. I like having those. When someone calls up, look, there is no way before I was um, 
I was listening to to to, uh, to WABC that I would have spent six or seven hours reading through the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop. Mm-hmm. I never would have done that because in liberal media, they're not even discussing it, let alone really doing a deep dive. Now, when I went in and I became an expert on it, I, I found that there was much less there than met the eye and some really bad news for Hunter Biden, but nothing that connected to Joe Biden, for example. But I did find myself getting chin deep diving into an issue that I never would have otherwise. And in that way, I think I'm a better citizen because of it. We're going to take your calls next. Anthony Weiner is here, my guest for the hour. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Before we break, let me end with this this question radio-related. One question I get asked so often by a lot of friends of mine that are, you know, left of center is, why are there so few really successful left of center talk show host and it, it, it's not none there have been several but nobody along the uh along the line of a rush limbaugh or a sean hannity in terms of success do you view what you're doing on saturdays as an opportunity to show the kind of the talk radio industry at large that it is possible for a center left show or a left of center show to be really successful in the number one market in the country well, I'd like to be successful, but what you've asked is a question that literal books have been written about. And I have a theory, and the theory is that progressives are more likely to be early adopters of, technology, of new technologies and that the new technology in this case was podcasts and satellite radio or non-terrestrial radio. And what has wound up happening is the combination of liberal voices going into podcasting and during the – I don't know what was the era. I guess it was 80s and 90s and early 2000s. The dominance of the Rush Limbaugh's, the Levins, the 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 right voices in syndication left very little oxygen for for people on the left. But today, it's kind of like all of media has been tossed up in the air. And I think that that I would like to be successful. I would like to be successful just to to because I mean, obviously I'd like to be successful. But also, I believe that there are a lot of people who are, as I said earlier, right-leaning, partisan people, but who are open to having a conversation and mm. a debate that sometimes zigs and zags them into different places. I think most Americans are open to new ideas, and I think that sometimes today's terrestrial radio list, um, um, programmers think that they're not. And, and, and just to reiterate something you said earlier – John Katsimatidis, he, he's, he has said, sure, he's rescued some people and given them second chances like me and others. But more importantly, he's put an emphasis on good radio mm. in quotation marks. Like if it's good radio, if it's interesting, if it's substantive, it has, it has some back and forth, then he wants to try it because he thinks it's going to be successful. And he's taken this, this station and taken it from 25th in the market to being the most successful talk radio station in the country. Mm. And um, so I hope to be part of that. And uh, at least in the current time slot, we're number one in all formats in New York. 800-848-WABC. Anthony Weiner is here. We'll continue with your calls, or we'll begin with your calls straight ahead. WABC. This is the 
other side of midnight. I'm Frank Lorano here with Anthony Weiner, former Democratic congressman and the host of the Anthony Weiner Show on Saturday afternoons, 2 o'clock. Now, I want to talk about the congressional race that you alluded to a second ago, but let me ask you about two of your colleagues that are running against one another. you got uh, Carolyn Maloney and Gerald Nadler facing off in a very competitive primary, which may include, looks like will include, uh, another progressive challenger as well, Siraj Patel, as somebody that uh, that knows the district pretty well, as somebody that knows both of those people pretty well, I would think. How do you handicap that race? I think I'd rather have Upper West Side votes in the primary than Upper East Side votes in the primary. There's more of them in Carolyn's district than there are in Jerry's district. But, I mean, punditry aside, I think there is room. Maybe it's not for Patel, but there is room for someone to come in and say, you know what, we've got two – old bulls this is going to be a republican congress i'm i'm fairly certain unless something dramatic changes this might be a good time to say let's get a new voice in there they're both of these you know they've got a lot of seniority you know i read a story in the new york times i think it hit hit the wires today about this race it i sometimes resent when politicians talk about quote-unquote my district like it's not the nadler district it's not the carolyn maloney district this is this is new york's district I think that if I had a handicap it, though, I think I'd rather I, – I, I would give the edge to Jerry Nadler. Upper West Side votes more plentiful and also Patel primaried Carolyn Maloney before. So you would kind of think that votes for him would come out of Carolyn's side of Manhattan. Um, but I, I have to tell you, having a compact district on Manhattan Island makes a lot of sense. I understand that it's costing us one of these Democratic leaders, but from a purely – you know, a, the pure perspective of what's a compact district doing one in upper Manhattan makes some sense to me. We'll talk about the uh, de Blasio district in just a minute, but uh, I've uh, yammered on enough. Let's get some some folks an opportunity to talk to you. 800-848-WABC. Kurt is on Staten Island. Hello, Kurt. Hey. What's Good on your morning, mind, Frank. Kurt? How are you? I'm great. What's I'm, on I'm, your mind? I'm all right. I, what, you know something? I'm, I am not a Democrat, but I love Anthony Weiner for some reason. All right, he did whatever happened happened, but the guy is brilliant. Well, again, we're working on the new humble Anthony Weiner. We don't want to. We don't want him to hear too many people call him brilliant. You're there. You're listening. You're brilliant, man. It's you nice got of you to so say, much Kurt. to offer. You're such a smart man. You, I, I listen to you. All right, like I said, I'm conservative. All right, but you know, I'm, and, and, and you know what? And, and it is persons like yourself that made me conservative. <laughs> Talk about a backhanded compliment. Well, thank you, Kurt. I appreciate it. It's very kind of you to say. And if you have questions, by the way, we have a, as somebody that has had a wealth of experience on the uh, municipal government level, the federal government level, that knows what it's like to run a citywide campaign twice, that knows what it's like to be married to someone who's essentially running a presidential campaign as well. It's a very unique perspective, and also someone that knows what it's like to go to prison. 800-848-WABC, that's 800-848-9222. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hey, good evening. Hey, Anthony, I got a good story for you. Fire away. I'm, I'm not. I'm not judging you because I think they overcriminalize everything with these electronic uh, laws and everything. We won't get into that because I know you got to put on a, you know, a squeaky clean image now. But I got a good story for you. Okay, I used to have. Um, I'll confess and come clean. I used to have the same kind of similar. Not exactly, but you know, I had my own kind of fetishes over the phone and everything like that. And uh, I picked on. One time I picked on the wrong girl from the wrong state. It was like uh, 
some girl from South Carolina. You can't get more conservative than that. And my cell phone started pinging after that, okay? And I thought they were trying to narrow down my uh, location. And I eventually had to destroy the phones. But that's the way to get away from those mofos. I wanted to tell you right now, you know, that's, you got to use your head and be one step ahead of them. All right. Well, thank but, you for that advice, Larry. I hope everybody took notes on that uh, for anybody that's similarly situated. 800-848-WABC. Chris is in the Catskills. Chris, you're on with Anthony Weiner. Hi. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Anthony, I see you having a lot of skills as an elected official. I see you as a very effective administrator. You would make an outstanding mayor of New York City or a county executive, if you were to run for office again, you clearly have the talents to be a legislator. What would your legislative platform be in your first term? And I would strongly encourage you to run, by the way. We, we got to get rid of ideologues in the Democratic Party. I'm, an, I'm a Democrat, and I was an elected official before myself. Thank you. Well, I, look, I, I, my days of being an elected official are behind me. I think there's a lot of ways that I can serve Frankly, doing this, you know, the idea of, of, of getting people to come together on issues, to try to expand a little bit on issues that people haven't thought about much. I think, you know, my I have always felt that my dream was to be mayor of the city because I wanted the responsibility. I wanted the, the tough things. And also, I believe that that mayor is basically a non – well, I don't want to say nonpartisan, but a non-political job when it's New York City. And I think one of the things that Bill de Blasio lost sight of, and I think that – Rudy Giuliani and Bloomberg kind of remembered was that to to a large degree, the problems that we have today defy ideological uh, parameters. I think that if you pursue reducing crime through the lens of the obvious, when we had to reduce crime the last time in the 19 in the late 1990s, we hired more cops. <laughs> That's one of the things we did. We taxed ourselves a little more safe streets, safe city. We hired more cops. We got up to about the 38,000 that we have today. If I were to if I were to snap my fingers and say, what can we do to deal with crime today? I would say increase the number of police officers that are on our streets. I think that while a great deal gets made of these of the no cash uh, bail law, I think too much of it gets made of it, even if it's two or three or four or five percent of people that are getting rotated out onto the streets too quickly. I think we should change that. I I, I believe that there are common sense things that we can do to reduce the expense of our city government. Um, that we should be willing to do. I actually put out two books of ideas um, called Keys to the City when I ran for mayor both in 2005 and then again in 2013 because I think that ultimately mayor is where you can do that. You can take an idea and and make it work. But I, I don't think I would want to be – the question asked, well, if I was a legislator again, I tell you right now I don't think I'd want to go to Washington. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a place right now where the action is happening in terms of lawmaking – because I think that both parties are kind of captives to their wings and people are, you know, look, we've we passed fewer laws. Uh, we passed 25 percent of the laws in the last Congress than we did in the so-called do nothing Congress of the 1950s, uh, 1940s. So, I, I mean, I don't think that it's a place that action happens anymore. I think municipal government is where it's going uh, well, on. Well, so you you said you don't have an interest in running for or your days of running for office are over in the future. You think that applies to both state government and municipal government as well? You're definitely slamming the lid. No chance. No, I, I don't. I don't see it. I don't see it. First of all, the things I'm doing here in WABC are speaking honestly and not being concerned about partisanship. And that's not a good way to run a campaign, to be honest. But I, I've did, I've done that time. Also, 
You know, this, I do believe that there is time for regeneration of new people to come and get it. I think sometimes I look up and I look at the ballot and I'm like, God, this guy's running right. again. Right. I and and I I don't believe we should have term limits, but I believe that people should have the judgment to say, you know what, I'm going to step aside and let someone else do it. Well, but the problem is, a, a lot of folks don't have that judgment to step aside and let someone else uh, do it. But uh, that's certainly a broader discussion. Speaking of would-be political comebacks, your one hour a week partner Curtis Slewa was here yesterday. And uh, he had some thoughts about a potential political comeback for you. Guess how many people would say they would vote for Mondaire Jones out of 100 registered Democrats? 7%. So if my math is correct, and I wasn't too good at math, take de Blasio 6%, Mondaire Jones 7%. That's only 13%. I hope that Frank Morano pushes Anthony Weiner tonight in the morning when he returns from being totally flushed out of cash in Atlantic City shooting craps at the boycott. Was not in Atlantic City. To push Anthony Weiner to run in that district. I'm telling you, I've done the analytics. As you know, I recently ran for mayor. I was all over that district. Bing, 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 like Ricochet Rabbit. Anthony Weiner could beat Bill de Blasio and Mondaire Jones in a Democratic primary. I know you're saying that's impossible. The guy just got off of probation, federal probation. Stranger things have happened in the body politic. Keeping in mind what you said about Washington not being a place for progress these days, uh, Curtis does have a point in that the 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 number of people that may dislike you in a Democratic primary, they would be divided up among three or four candidates. And with no ranked choice voting in a congressional primary, there is a very realistic scenario in which you could uh, slip in if you were to run in that de Blasio seat with 20, 25 percent of the vote. But you're closing the door on that. No chance that happens. Well, uh, Curtis is a smart guy. Look, here's what I know about that district. When I live in it, I grew up in it. I grew up in the Park Slope side of that district. My dad and mom still live there. Um, I represented it in Congress for a while. It, it, It just it's part. But but listen to these communities. It's Greenwich Village. It's the Lower East Side where Wolf Wiener, my great-grandfather, had a fur shop in, in the, at the turn of the century. It's Brownstone, Brooklyn. It's, Re- it's, it's uh, Sunset Park. It's Windsor Terrace. These are some very, very, very liberal corners of the city, maybe the most liberal. I don't know if I'm a fit for that district anymore. All that being said, if I did run, I probably would win it. But you you don't have an interest in running, keeping in mind that you could. Uh, going back to Washington, D.C. as a member of Congress is not something mm. that appeals to me. I did that, and I did it, you know, I, I it doesn't, I would not go there because I wanted to make laws. Members of Congress are not making laws mm-hmm. anymore. Right now, what the people getting elected to Congress are people that want to increase their platform, that want to make a lot of noise, but it is not a place to go if you want right. to get so stuff Ilhan done. Ilhan Omar, Marjorie Taylor There's Green, a lot of, yeah, I Matt mean, Gates, it, Corey Bush. You know, here's the way I would put it. It used to be that people, when a member of Congress, used social media to, to amplify their voice. Now, people, it's on social media who want to have another platform, try to go to Congress so they can get in, get more followers. I don't think that I – but I would tell you who's not going to be it, um, and that's Bill de Blasio. You know, I, I looked at some of these numbers just like Curtis did. He is known by 100 percent of the district and only getting chosen at this early point by 6 percent. He's not going up from there. 
So I don't know who it's going to be, but I, I don't think Curtis is wrong. I think if I ran, I would probably win it. Uh, so the New York Times also did a pretty tough article on uh, de Blasio, and I ran into uh, de Blasio at an event we were at the other day. And uh, I asked him to come on the show. He said he's going to come on, and uh, I'm certainly going to you know, be fair, but uh, I think appropriately challenging. It, the m- m- common denominator among New Yorkers these days seems to be that they are not fans of Bill de Blasio's tenure as mayor, particularly his second term. You indicated Lydia's constant refrain of you being blamed for Bill de Blasio. Other people have said this back in 2013, and there was a a very good documentary. I don't know how you feel about it, but there's a great documentary chronicling this called Wiener, which is available on streaming, which shows you at even after after your scandal, at least round one of your scandal, leading in the in the polls to be the next mayor of New York City, only to finish uh, fifth or sixth with de Blasio winning, benefiting from the collapse of your campaign. Um, do you think that's fair? Do you deserve the blame for Bill de Blasio? <laughs> I don't, look, there was certainly an element in 2013. I would not have run. I would not have tried to come back and run if I didn't think I was the best candidate. And part of that calculation was I looked at the field and I didn't think that the field was particularly – I didn't think the field was particularly good. I mean um, – but I mean if – <laughs> I was leading. When I was done leading, he won. Okay, so those are the facts. I don't think you can make a straight line, but there's no doubt that if it were not for my, uh, not for people, the 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 wreckage of my life, as we say in in recovery, that had been un, uncovered during that election, I would have won it. Um, but Bill De Blasio got elected fair and square. Uh, I don't think he had the strongest opposition in in, in the race that, that we ran. You know, I got to know um, John Katzmatinis years ago. We were both alumnus of, of Brooklyn Tech. We got to, to bond again over the campaign trail. He was running in 2013 oh, sure, I remember, yeah. as well. I think he recognized also that the Democratic field was not any great shakes. But I don't – I'll accept responsibility and make amends to the people of the city of New York for a lot of things. And if they think that I'm to blame for Bill de Blasio, I will take it. I tell you what – if you he he doesn't like me, even though when I left, uh, when when uh, in his first term, I wrote a column in the Daily News. I was always praising of him. I was on New York One supporting him because I don't believe that people should lose races and then carpet there right. who have who beat them for uh, for four years. Um, but he doesn't treat me like someone who's a friend. And I I think a, a lot of people stop me on the street and say, you gave us Bill de Blasio. I wish you would have been mayor. But I'll leave that for someone else to decide. Well, a lot of folks, particularly those on the left, blame you not just for Bill de Blasio, but for Donald Trump. Uh, we all remember what happened in the 2016 campaign when uh, authorities seized your laptop. And this created a a scandal or furthered a scandal and maybe some perceptions of a scandal for Hillary Clinton. And a lot of folks say that it was that incident that might have made the difference in several swing states that allowed Trump to win in 2016. One person emailed me uh, just yesterday saying, oh, you know, please thank Anthony Weiner for this new uh, doing away with Roe versus Wade and the three Supreme Court justices that Donald Trump got to got to appoint. Uh, keeping in mind your willingness to take some responsibility for de Blasio, do you deserve any blame for Donald Trump? Well, if you want to make this argument that Anthony Weiner's flap was the butterfly whose wings flapped and <laughs> right. changed all of history, you can take it to a, an absurd degree. But I can – I would say this, and I, I, I mean, first of all, the the facts behind all of this stuff shouldn't be lost. You either think that Comey did the right thing by having my laptop for a month doing nothing with it – 
claiming there was a lot of things on there and having to go to Congress and say, oh, actually, there turned out to be nothing. Uh, oh, um, having a big press conference closing the investigation and then in a letter 10 days before opening it. If you think that Comey proceeded with that information correctly, then OK, then you can blame me. But if you think that he didn't, then you've got to put the blame on Comey, not on Anthony Weiner. And my view is that Comey did everything wrong in that. He holding a press conference saying that they did not going to hold Hillary Clinton responsible. That's not what prosecutors are supposed to do. They had my laptop. There was nothing on my laptop. He eventually had to admit that there was nothing there. They sat on it for months for reasons that are suspicious to me. But as close as that election was, you can blame a lot of different things. You can say, listen, maybe Hillary should have gone to Wisconsin. Maybe she should have done different things. I, I don't know. I'm uh, not of that belief, by the way. I, I don't think there's anybody that was leaning towards Hillary that voted against her because of uh, you know, because of the Comey situation. But let situation. me just say this. You know, here's a tendency we have when it comes to we like narratives. Mm. You know, we like narratives in our lives. We like narratives in our public in, in our in our discussions of public. Sometimes stuff just happens. OK, sometimes a collection of stuff just happens. So what we when we go back after the fact and says Anthony Weiner led, led to this, led to that, led to this, led to that. Therefore, um, Donald Trump, I don't think you can do that. But I understand that fascination. And one of the things that I've thought about and, and, and I'd like to get your help with is either on the air or off the air is how to go back and tell that story. You talked about the documentary was made about my campaign. I never saw it. But the true stories of what was on my laptop still, if you go on, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, put Anthony Weiner's laptop in your Twitter feed and see what pops up. It's, you know, a lot of people believe that there are these mysterious elements on my uh, on my laptop. But at some point, I will try to tell those questions. And if people want to ask specific questions, but there wasn't anything on my laptop. Um, yes, it got seized. Well, seized is a strong word. I turned over all of my mm-hmm. devices at, during this time, um, and they had them for months. And and uh, Comey went to Congress and said thousands of emails were discovered, and it turned out there was like a half dozen that they didn't already have. It was a backup of of, uh, of, of another device. We're going to continue with Anthony Weiner in just a minute. 800-848-WABC. Still a lot to get to, including uh, some, uh, some, some things that might bring all of New York together that have nothing to do with disliking Bill de Blasio. Hey, you seem pretty energetic. How about sticking around one more hour? I, what do you I say? Would, you down I, for I, one I more hour? I love it. In for a penny, in for a pound. Plus, I, I get to it. see right. how the magic is made here at the, <laughs> with Frank Morano. <laughs> Please. All right. Uh, Anthony Weiner, we're going to get him to stick around for one more hour. We'll have plenty of time for your calls. 800-848-9. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined until uh, 3 o'clock by Anthony Weiner, former Democratic congressman, WABC radio talk show host, every Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. And 
a very devoted and longtime hockey fan. How excited are you about the uh, New York Rangers advancing to the uh, Eastern Finals? Well, I have a confession to make. I'm not a Ranger fan. I'm an Islander fan. Uh, So it's kind of like, are you a Mets-Yankee guy? I'm a Mets guy. Right. So you know that you root for the Mets and anyone playing the Yankees, right? right? (laughs) Exactly. So uh, I didn't know hockey fans had that same level of enmity. Islanders and Ranger fans do. Like the the Rangers, Ranger fans a couple of times a game. In the middle of the in the middle of the game, we'll just suddenly chant "Pop and sucks." sucks right. You know, so, even I know that. And I don't so know they, about hockey. Um, but this has been a great. You know, I've really bonded. I've I've been a hockey fan my whole life, and my son Jordan um, never really was into it. And then last year during the Stanley Cup, he just sat down next to me while I'm watching the Islanders, and not only got into watching it with me, but started playing. And now he he plays four times a week, and we really have bonded over hockey and. And so we watched the games. I'm very impressed with this Ranger team. They were not a great team despite their record during the season. They're five on five. They, they were not that great a team. They were just supported by this insane performance of their goaltender. And going into the Eastern Conference Finals, um, Vasilevsky, they're going to be playing these two Russian goalies who are arguably the best, on, the best this year and the best on earth are going to go against each other. I'll be surprised if the Rangers win that series, but I've been surprised all along. This is going to be a lot of fun for New York. You know, mm. New York, there's a bandwagon effect that takes on that suddenly you start seeing red, white, and blue hats everywhere and people wearing their Messier jerseys and everything else. Um, so I'm excited for that. I'm I'm starting to buy in. I'm starting to buy in. I, but you I, rooted against the Rangers in this series that they I just won? Didn't. I didn't. I wanted them to I wanted them to win. Now Jordan had his his brackets were doing very well, and he picked Carolina to win this series. And so he was rooting for Carolina just so he would beat me in, in our little bracket challenge. Um, but I, I, you know, last night I was rooting for the Rangers, and I'm glad that they're doing well. I can't do it with, obviously, a lot of enthusiasm because I have to listen yeah. to my Met fans and the buddies I play hockey with, or, mo- uh, uh, yeah, or Ranger fans, rather, are mostly Ranger fans, so I'll have to listen to it for a while. But if not this year, this is a team with a very, very bright future. They have a young core of players that's going to be that are going to be very good. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I, I think they're going to lose to Tampa in, in this series. But I, you know, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised by anything. So not only is your son Jordan playing hockey, but you're still playing hockey. I am. I am. Even though sometimes my teammate Sashes put my equipment bag in the <laughs> crease and then you know, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I I still play once or twice a week. Yeah, but you're a New York Met fan too, though. Right? I am. Yeah, and uh, how am. are you feeling about our season? This I got to say, an- another another offensive explosion last night. I, mm. I, I I feel great about it. now. I mean, I there's a tough stretch in the season here, and obviously our our starting lo- rotation is 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 really crippled. But if we can do 500 baseball while the two big pitchers are out and Degrom is starting to throw again, I'm feeling I'm feeling optimistic. I mean, the Yankees are having an amazing season, also. That's for sure. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. John in Brooklyn has been very patiently holding. Hello, John. Frank, I just want to tell you this is one of your best interviewers in months, and, oh, well, and keep at it. You. I'm glad you're having uh, Anthony on for another hour. Anthony, I should tell you that I don't agree with you politically, but. You have done a great job persuading me that I should listen to you. I really appreciate your delivery on the radio, how you're willing to listen to other points of views. That At, at first, I, I, when I heard you, I wanted to close the radio. But now, uh, when you're on and, and I have the radio on, I will listen to you to the end. I may not have time always to listen to you and Curtis, but that one hour you do is absolutely riveting. And I want to suggest someone 
who I think you haven't spoken about yet, who should be competing successfully against Jerry Nadler, uh, my fellow high school alumnus, and uh, Carolyn Mahoney. And that's Maud Marin. I think she's a common-sense Democrat that uh, well, John Katsimatidis well, would support. There'll certainly be a lot of time between now and August to look at that particular race. 800-848-WABC, but uh, that's very nice, John. Thank you. I appreciate it, John. Thank um, you. Hey, by the way, obviously, you know, I, I don't know, have any idea what um, what John is paying you, but, you know, I know what radio pays. I, I know you're not making a living, you know, on your one day a week on, on, the, on the radio. What do you do for money these days? Well, I've done a couple of things. You know, I, uh, for about a year and a half, I was the CEO, and this is this might be a sentence you might be surprised to hear. I was the CEO for a company that made countertops out in, uh, in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, a company called Ice Stone. They, it's a great company. They take recycled glass, and rather than dispose of it, they mix it with cement and make beautiful countertops. Did that for about a, a year and a half. They're still going, going strong. We started the process of turning the company into a worker-owned cooperative. And the one thing a worker-owned cooperative doesn't need is a CEO. Mm. I've done a little bit of consulting, kind of kibitzing with companies um, that wanted to figure out kind of navigating um, the matrix with government. For you know, for example, I uh, – I, uh, And you did that previously too, the last time I you did, ran, right? I did. Yeah. You know, I remember the Times quoted you saying the problem was that you weren't charging enough money. Well, no. I mean he, here's the thing. Is that when you know there is two ways that that you can use your knowledge of government? Well, three if you include radio. But one of the ways to monetize them is to go into lobbying, and lobbying was never. I, I never like that type. Of, not, not that there's anything dishonorable about it, but you wind up doing the bidding in a way that sometimes is too much trading on personal relationships. But there are many companies that are out there that are very good at creating a product, creating a service. And want to figure out a way to be to be in the firmament of government. For example, if uh, I, I worked for a company for a while that um, makes uh, electric vehicle charging stations, and there's always been this chicken and egg problem between well, no one has electric vehicles because they have nowhere to charge them, and no one's going to build the chargers because there aren't enough people that own electric vehicles. And so, trying to navigate those problems and trying to help them out. So, I've done a little bit. Uh, a little bit of that, and also look, I've done a lot of just being available for my for for Huma and for Jordan. I was away for 15 months and eight days in prison. Being available and being a present dad has been a high priority for me too. Uh, we're going to continue with Anthony Weiner. He's a real trooper. Say what you will about him, like him, dislike him. He's sticking around until three o'clock in the morning. Uh, this is the other side of midnight. You have questions. Anthony Weiner's got hopefully a couple of answers. 800-848-WABC. Uh, commendations coming up, and we'll talk cigars a little bit later. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It's Tuesday, a shortened work week. 
for uh, for many of us. And uh, although I guess we are doubling the work week for our newest colleague here at WABC, Anthony Weiner, that name sounds familiar. Even if you're living outside of the New York area, it's because he's a former Democratic congressman, former Democratic candidate for mayor, and at two or three times in his life was at the epicenter of one of the biggest tabloid scandals in the entire world. And uh, he is uh, kind enough to join us. We're taking your calls at 800-848-WABC. You know, Congressman, we spoke about Bill de Blasio and your campaign for mayor very conspicuously, and I'm glad you're sticking around for another hour. Uh, I did not ask you your take on the current occupant of Gracie Mansion, Eric Adams. Uh, It's now six months into his mayoralty, one, you know, halfway through the first year. How do you think he's doing? Well, I'm a fan of his. I su- supported him, kibitzed with him a little bit. We stay in touch. Um, I th- I think we, you know, it's another example of how when push comes to shove, he kind of ran as a more moderate voice in that primary. We did not choose our most liberal or woke or progressive nominee. We chose him, and I'm glad we did because I think that's the kind of voice the the city needs. Look, he's going to be judged on this one issue of crime. Um, arrests are up, but crime is still up as well. And there is this sense of unease. And I see it in my neighborhood. I'm sure other other people see it in theirs. You know, crime is it's not like it. You know, when people say oh, it's never been worse, that's ridiculous. It's been worse a lot of times. Well, by the way, one of the people saying that is Eric Adams. He well, actually that, said that, that, verbatim yes, that I, last I, week. I think I think he he also said early on that it's not as bad as people think and got beaten up right. for that, too. You kind of like I don't think he's thread the needle just right yet. Uh, but I think he's doing a good job. And I think that one of the things I I think that we have to realize is that six months might seem like a long time, but it's not. The six months is not a long time to kind of wrap your arms around a national problem that we're having with this increase in crime. It's not really clear why crime is going up the way it is because it's going up all across the country. Um, and I don't think we're only going to arrest our way out of it. That's in, evidence has shown in the past that, that we haven't. But I do think he's doing a good job, and I and I, I give him the benefit of the doubt on these conversations that often go on on the station here. In terms of Adams, though, just this weekend here in New York, we saw three people killed as a result of uh, of gun violence. He uh, he has been mayor for six months. At what point do is it fair for people to hold him accountable if crime, especially violent crime, continues to go up? It's perfectly re- it's perfectly reasonable for for people to hold him accountable immediately and even after one day. Look, you're the mayor. You sit in that seat. You get the blame when things are not going well. Um, But I think that practically speaking, any change in crime statistics, I think that it's going to take a little time. And also I think we should acknowledge that what we're seeing is going on nationally. We do have, you know, since COVID, We do have this spike of crime. It's not clear why. Is it because there are more mental health issues? Not clear. Is it because a dramatic increase in gun purchases? I'm not sure of that either. Is it because of the no cash bail thing? I don't believe it is Mm. because they don't have those laws and other those changes in laws in other places. Are are DAs not not prosecuting as much? I don't know. Long story short, in, in answer to your question. Voters can judge people however they want. That's their prerogative as voters. My perspective is I want to give him a little more time to get his arms around this, and I think that we should be open to his suggestions about ways to do it differently. Now, he has said, maybe not in so many words, that he wants to move back towards the approach of trying to interdict lower-level crimes in order to get to the higher. 
you know, it's out of vogue to say it now, but the broken windows uh, approach right. to the term he kind of ran thing. away from. Uh, and uh, he didn't want it when he was on with Bernie and Sid recently. They asked him, oh, you're bringing back broken windows policing. He was very careful, very adamant, I guess, because it's become such a politically charged term to say, no, 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 we're not doing broken windows. <laughs> yeah, but clearly is, he is. There is. It. I think that you're right, that very often this is a branding problem. And the branding in some corners of the Democratic constituency, in some in some quarters, the branding of broken windows has gone astray. Look, let's not forget, there was a period where we were stopping hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers on the street who did absolutely nothing wrong, overwhelmingly black and brown people, and harassing them on the way to and from their work, to and from school, and we over we were over policing. Now, today, I would argue that maybe we're under policing a little bit, that maybe the pendulum has swung too far. However you brand it, what he has said, which is try to get these lower level crimes and make these lower level arrests and prosecute them as a way to prevent the larger ones, is a strategy that I think is going to work. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to Wilford in Newark. Hello, Wilford. Hello. Um, hey, what's on your mind, Wilford? Stuff. How are you? Oh, I'm good. All right. Well, now that we got that out of the way, what's on your mind? About the crime stuff. Hey, that's just common sense. If you if you have somewhere where you enforce the rules, you ain't going to have it. But here we have where they don't enforce the rules. And then... And then they let people out. And you think crime's not going up. It's going up in other cities because all the cities were doing that same kind of stuff. Not, you know, not policing like they should be. All right. A- any, anything you want to add there, Congressman? I, I just, I appreciate it, I just don't think that you're always going to arrest your way out of this. I think you've got to fear, like we had this period during COVID where we were taking mentally ill people and turning them out onto the streets because mm-hmm. there weren't enough uh, social distancing within mental facilities. That's going to create circumstances like we have on 14th Street in, in 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 my neighborhood where you just see people who should be somewhere. You see them on the subways. And there's something else that's going on, and this might be somewhat counterintuitive. There are fewer people on the streets, fewer people in the subways, and that's an environment actually that there's more crime. We We have safety in numbers in big cities. And until you get people back into their offices, back feeling confident on the trains, um, I think you're going to see these things. But there's no doubt there's something happening nationally, though. I think it might be after the protests around George Floyd. It might be something to do with people being shut in for COVID. It might be that we see crime go up when the economy goes down. It's Mm. a perfect it's a it's a direct line indicator. Um, it's not just a New York City problem, but I think you've got to attack it in more than one way. 800-848-WABC. Speaking of Adams, there have been whispers that he views himself as a presidential candidate either in 2024 or at some point in the future. As you said earlier, nobody goes into politics because they think they're the worst possible candidate for right. any job that the public gets to cast judgment on. But do you think there's anything to that? Do you think Adams views himself as a future presidential candidate? Well, politicians, and this might be a minority opinion, I like ambition in politicians because if you're going to be ambitious, you're going to work hard, and you're going to realize that you're thinking all the time about if I run for the next office, what do I say I've done about the problems of today? So if he wants to run for higher office, more power to him. But he probably, if he looks in the mirror and wants to see President Adams looking back at him, 
Wow, that would be the third President Adams, wouldn't it? But um, <laughs> he probably realizes he's got to solve the problem of crime in New York. He's got to, the problems of, of economic um, insecurity in New York. Uh, I don't believe it, to be honest. Um, I believe that you know people might chatter about – you know, w- whenever you get into political life, the next thing people start chattering about, what else are you going to run for? Um, if he decides to run for president, I don't think it's going to be in 2024. 800-848-WABC. So if you were to offer some advice to the mayor privately or publicly about how to get get his arms around gun violence, and again, been in office uh, six months now, I think at some point, many New Yorkers, even the 73% or 67 to 70% of them that voted for him are going to start to demand some results since this is what he staked his whole campaign about. What do you think the best way to do that is? Would, is it with hiring more cops? Is it with more more arrests, uh, more sort of broken window style policing, or is it something else? Well, look, I th- you're I, the ideas guy. I, I Keys think, to the city. I think he is right. I mean, there's a, a fair. The last quarter there was about a 25 percent increase in the number of arrests from the same quarter a year before. They're arresting more people. Um, that's a good start. Secondly, I think you've got to use your bully pulpit here to put pressures on the district attorneys and on the state legislature and maybe even doing what David Dinkins did back in the day to say, listen, I think we all should pay a little bit more to hire some um, some more police officers. The other thing I think is more atmospheric, and that is I like the way Eric Adams is all over the place, appearing at different events, um, showing up in in the nightlife columns and everything else. But if you're going to do that. One, I want you to do it here in New York City. I think traveling outside of the city, unless you're going to Washington, I would probably not do. Just, just if no other reason, just to make it very clear uh, that you take this seriously. And the third thing that I would, would do is to keep doing what he's doing on trying to get business leaders in our city to do what John Katsimatidis has done here, which is saying everyone's got to show up. Everyone's got to yeah. come in because it does become – uh, a, 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 a problematic cycle. If the streets are empty because there's no one in the office buildings and the offices are dark, it becomes more perilous outside and more likely that there be crimes committed. One thing I would not do is return to this idea of basically going into some neighborhoods and just frisking everybody because all that does is it gets people less cooperating with the police. It creates more and more tension, more and more resentment. And I'll say one, one, one other thing. Dominic talked about this extensively on the last, on the last hour of his show. This national gun problem is a local problem for us. Guns start out being legal guns and they become illegal guns. So that when we have conversations about how to keep, uh, uh, how to do gun registrations and how to improve the, the, reduce the access to dangerous weapons in places like Texas and Florida by having tougher national laws, that is something that I want my mayor advocating for. Advocating for. There's only so much we can do to keep the guns off the street here if they're coming literally by the truckload up on I-95. Um, they, when they become, they they transition from being illegal guns into being illegal. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC, and uh, you may not be active on Twitter anymore, but I still am. Uh, at Frank Morano, a couple of people tweeting questions to you, including uh, Republican. Actually, I don't know if he's Republican. He's worked for Republicans and Democrats. Noted political consultant uh, O'Brien Murray, E. O'Brien Murray, who ran Bob Turner's campaign, right. Good man. Uh, the fellow that uh, succeeded you in Congress. He tweets: uh, Wiener intern Olivia Newsy went on to being a national reporter uh-huh. and almost. 
almost an author for a book on the 2020 presidential race. Did you foresee her writing about your campaign? What was it like with an intern wanting to make a big splash, basically a reporter in your headquarters? Yeah, uh, she's going on to become quite a, a thing. You know, she and I stayed in touch a little bit after that, it, it went like the weird interactions, you know, um, I can't remember who it was. I think it was BuzzFeed said that I was the most important politician of the 2010s. And one of the things they pointed out is it created Oliver New- Olivia Newsy as a thing. Uh, by the way, just a quick word about Bob Turner. Very good man. Really, you know, he and I ran against each other in 2010. I defeated him. And when um, he beat David Weprin in the special. Well, it's funny when when Nancy Pelosi and later on President Obama were uh, pressuring me and ultimately correctly to resign. uh, I told them you're going to lose this seat because I knew a Bob Turner was a capable guy, but also that that district was more conservative than people thought. Um, It was recently Bob Turner's birthday. I sent him a text wishing him happy birthday. I hope he's doing well. In, In answer to your question. So she. Turned out to see an opportunity in 2013 to go embed herself as an intern, basically a volunteer in my in my office, in the campaign office. And being a volunteer, we had hundreds of them. And she sold – I don't remember the exact details of the story. It's a little bit of a blur. She sold a story to the Daily News or told a story. My life as an intern in Anthony Weiner's office, I don't remember what the crux of it was any more than that. I think just making fun of me. Um, and she went on to be a, a, a real serious reporter. I think she works for New York Magazine now. Um, if uh, if I helped employ another journalist, uh, she wouldn't be the first or the last. A lot of people made a few bucks telling stories about me. 800-848-WABC. Brendan is in Rockland County. Brendan, hello. Hey, good morning, Mr. Moreno. How are you? Doing great. What's on your mind uh, this morning, Brendan? I gotta tell you, you know, uh, I'm listening to uh, I listen to you every every morning on the way into work, and uh, and you bring up a very a very good topic today, and, and it's about about Mayor Adams, and uh, I was I was uh, involved with FDNY during 9/11 through the whole Giuliani mayor thing, and I've never ever seen a mayor act uh, the way he did as swiftly as he did. Um, he cleaned the city up pretty much. He, he picked the city up. He he got the city broken, then it was destroyed, and he picked the city back up. I don't think there's ever going to be a mayor close to what Giuliani is. But the first step that, that this Adams person could do is when the last clown was in there and defunded the police by a billion dollars, why not refund the billion dollars and up the street patrols again? You know, taking yeah. a billion dollars is is, is well. A, well so a, I'll let um, I'll let Anthony Weiner answer. What I would just add is, again, I, if my remembrance of what happened there, Brendan, was that the driving force behind that billion dollar cut was the city council. And you know, I, look, I never voted for Bill De Blasio. Would not vote for him for anything. But early in his tenure, uh, in part due to the advocacy for Bill Bratton, de Blasio pushed for hiring a thousand new police officers. So, you know, you got to give him both he and Bratton a little bit of credit there. But uh, as someone that ran for mayor twice and served in the city council, Congressman, I'll defer to your well, I analysis. Mean, look, let's let's keep in mind that that crime was 40, almost 50 percent lower under de Blasio than it was under Giuliani. So if you if, right, I mean that's is that is that a fair comparison though? Well, I mean crime. If you're going to give someone, if you're going to criticize Adams for crime going up for t- up twenty percent or twenty five percent overall, but forty percent in violent crimes, you've got to give the guy who did eight years of steady decline to the point that we were this, we were we were about 
I mean, you do the math. He was at 40 percent safer than we were under Giuliani. Now, well, seven years of steady decline because the last year it did correct, go up. correct. But let me let me just just say that you know it, it, it's I, I just want to want to stress something here. You know, I think that there are a lot of calls that police officers would be the first to say, and I did a lot of ride-alongs when I was in Congress in the city council. There are a lot of calls that police officers go on, domestic violence calls, domestic dispute calls, um, EDP, emotionally disturbed people calls, that a lot of police officers know are calls they don't want to get because it's in many ways it's not really true policing. They're going into these perilous situations with mentally ill people, people who are fired up at their wife, at their husband, at their boyfriend, whatever it is. And there is this idea that there should be resources that we bring to bear on those types of cases that aren't just sending an RMP to police officers over or that we have to figure out a way to get those people off the street, get those people help, get those people drug counseling, whatever it might be. And so there is this element of, listen, let's think about different ways to do this. Um, but I believe that w- that one of the ways that Rudy Giuliani and I was in the city council at the time – that Rudy Giuliani was able to be successful is that under Dave Dinkins, we hired a bunch of new cops and they were deployed very well by Jack Maple and Rudy Giuliani, who did a very good job seeing the the necessity for data driven pursuit of crime. Comstat. Comstat. And this this thing that sounds so intuitive now and and de Blasio benefited from and Bloomberg benefited from of creating a structure where police officers were accountable that that executive officers at prestation houses were accountable, that the COs were accountable right on up the line and treated it like a business. They were in the business of reducing crime. And if they didn't do it, they were going to lose their positions of authority. And I think that Giuliani taught us that it is doable. Um, and so if the caller wants to give Giuliani credit, I would agree with him. He, I, I think that Giuliani does, deserves a lot of credit, but he had tools that maybe are not available to Eric Adams today. I, I, I seem to remember you when you were in the city council publicly feuding with Rudy Giuliani on the steps of City Hall. I don't remember you publicly giving Rudy Giuliani a lot of credit for Comstat implementation. Oh, no, at that's the time. not right. I actually, I actually had... I was challenged in my district because I was a little bit too close. Since in, I was a pretty tough on crime guy. I was, I was, you know, I was on the public safety committee. Crime was a very important uh, part of why I ran for office in in 1991. Um, so, I, and I, when I was on the judiciary committee, I supported the death penalty. I supported a lot of the mandatory minimums, things that I, frankly, would probably do differently this time. But no, I mean, the, the, the conflict I had with Mayor Giuliani, and I wonder if he, you know, I see him in the halls here. I should ask him if he recalls this, is that I had stumbled on a source in the fire department who was sending me information about how, and this is an obscure issue that I, I doubt um, you or many of your listeners remember. There was this period of time where public housing hallways were bursting into flames. Mm. There were fires going on in public housing. And as it turned out that this very cheap paint – had been purchased by the city, and it was bought. It was an, an ally, friend, donor of the mayor, yeah. whatever it was. Anyway, I had all this data. I was a young, ambitious guy. I was going to run for Congress, hopefully, sometime in the future. And I was making him, Howard Safe, I was making their life miserable because I was having these press conferences saying that we're going to have more of these fires until they repaint these hallways. Turned out to be right. And in one particular moment, I held a press conference on just before Christmas, and the city and the mayor was furious. 
And Howard Safer, then the fire commissioner, went out and says, Councilman Weiner is the councilman that stole Christmas. This is outrageous that he's making these allegations. But I actually wound up getting along fairly well with that administration. Um, and I gave them a lot of credit, but there were times that I that I, I certainly did feud with them. Well, we're going to continue with your calls in just a minute. Anthony Weiner is here for the hour, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. A lot to get to. Uh, we'll get to as much as we can in the next 40 minutes. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Tales, Born Too Late. By the way, if you ever want to know what kind of music uh, we're playing on this show, you could join our Facebook group. We post the bumper music there each and every morning. Uh, just go on Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, right now there is a panoply of opinions on there all about Anthony Weiner. Uh, some people ready to nominate me for a Marconi Award. Other people saying they're never going to listen again. Uh, hopefully more in the uh, in the former category than the latter. 800-848-WABC. Um, l- let, let me get to a few calls and then there's a lot of things I want to pick your brain on. Jeff in Jersey City has been patiently holding. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Frank. Hello, Anthony. I Hi, just Jeff. want to say one thing here, a preemptive kind of, I voted for Donald Trump. I voted for Anthony Weiner. I voted for Curtis. By the way, I'm not a Ku Klux Klan member. I'm not a white supremacist. Uh, I just thought I'd tell him since Joe Biden's calling everybody, a lot of white people, white supremacists. He's one himself. Anyway, uh, Anthony, I was a supporter of you from day one. The time you said you were a mainstream Ed Koch kind of Democrat, and, and that is your line, right, 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 uh, Tony? Uh, and, and again, you know, you're in my heart, and because um, uh, the thing with, you know, you were talking about the broken windows and Giuliano started to turn around. The thing is, you can't take your foot off the gas pedal with a city as complicated and huge as New York. I supported, actually, Andrew Cuomo, Cuomo because of the DNA from Mario. Uh, he was right in the beginning. McCall was just uh, uh, something that I never agreed with, machine kind of candidate. You ran against the machine candidate. I think he's a good man. I think it was uh, Fernando Ferrer, and um, you, you you did well, and you got you were getting a lot of attention. Everybody recognized your political internet. You were crushing De Blasio. Jeff, did you did you have a question? Because I want to get to some other people as well, Jeff. Uh, okay, there was so much, and and then the people that turned on him, Obama, and then Andrew Cuomo. Oh yeah, I do have a question. I do have a question. So much you had so much time here. You were talking going to films, but okay, it's for the once in a while. It's for the listeners, I guess. Um, but I'll be the listener and ask my question because that's my responsibility to ask my question. Biden's not one in twenty-four, Anthony. And uh, again, I respect your uh, political intellect and your friends with Liz Holtzman, who was one of your supporters. I thought um, you know a lot. Who's going to run? Biden's not running. He's not capable. Um, 
who's going to run in 2024. Uh, okay, so well, let's start with that question, and then maybe we could backtrack to the Liz Holtzman possibly running for the de Blasio Congressional District question. Uh, what do you see happening in 2024? I tend to agree with Jeff. I think Biden's going to have a tough time running in 2024. I, I think he's going to have a tough time, too. As a matter of fact, the only candidate I think he can beat is Donald Trump. Weirdly, I think I think one of the the only Democrats that Donald Trump can meet is Joe Biden. Uh, yeah, well, well, see, if and there's a lot of ifs, I think let me just say with a full sentence, I think that Joe Biden runs for reelection, period, full stop. If he doesn't, it'll be Hillary Clinton. And you, there you go. Uh, there, that, I mean, I just can't that, think, that's I my mean, analysis. Again, again, um, just thinking. Who, right. But yeah. just, you know. Frank, just thinking about who can put it together. Yeah. Well, no, that's it. We I don't said have the same a, thing. We don't have a vice president who can pull it together. None of the senators, they're basically the all the dwarves. I think that Hillary could if in 2023 the numbers are what right. they are today. And, you know, we're not alone in saying that. I think Mark Penn has said the same thing. I think uh, I think Andrew Stein has said the same thing. I think Doug Schoen has said the same thing. A lot of folks that are uh, attuned to democratic national politics have said the same thing. Now, uh, you talked about Adams getting elected largely on a platform of uh, reducing crime. And it's very interesting because in Los Angeles, where crime is also a big problem and other quality of life issues like homelessness, right now, one of the leading two candidates, we don't know if he's going to finish first or second, and they have a runoff system there if no one gets 50 percent, is a former Republican billionaire by the name of Rick Caruso, who's running as a Democrat on these kind of tough on crime issues, similar style in terms of messaging to, to Adams. Now, Given what we've been hearing in a post-Joe Crowley world of how far to the left the Democratic Party is moving, if Caruso is able to win this primary or, or uh, just, you know, actually it's uh, it's not a primary there. It's the top two vote getters, irrespective of primary they face off in the general. Right. If Caruso is able to win in L.A., you have Adams winning in New York. Are we seeing a kind of new urban Democratic Party where people that used to be Republicans, which Adams was as well, are much more comfortable voting Democrat and running as Democrats. And what do you think that means for the future of the Democratic Party overall? You see, this this is why I like having these conversations, because if you listen to the calls and many of the hosts on WABC throughout the week, they're like, oh, my God, this is the party dominated by AOC. But you're right that the parties, the candidates that are emerging, Joe Biden ran to the right, the, more the center of his party when he ran in 2016. Uh, 2020. You've got um, you you have New York. You have a mayor who didn't run sprinting to the right, but just to the right of the field. We didn't get a Meyer Wiley. We got a, an Eric Adams. And in in Los Angeles, it seems to be going that same way. It is still fundamentally, particularly around executives. Democrats are more moderate, even here in New York City. People think we're such a blue city. When I ran in 2005, I, I almost won. I probably would have won in 2013. Running to the little bit to the right, not far to the right. So, and, and by the way, two thousand nine. A lot of people think you. Well, in two thousand, right in, in two thousand nine, when when Bloomberg um, overturned term limits. So, I don't know if there's a great realignment, so to speak. I think that fundamentally, the premise that I described to you earlier about the show that I was doing is holding. Is that I believe that there is a centrist kind of perspective, particularly around executives. I think people are willing to say. All right, I have an aspiration about 
about my left policies, I'm going to send a left-leaning congressman there because, let's face it, a single congressman One is not – One out of 535. Right, right. Is not going to change the, – the Earth's rotation is not going to change because even with someone like AOC. When it comes to giving the key to the city, when it comes to an executive, becomes the president, we're not as willing to do that. Even in 2016, Hillary Clinton ran against uh, – in a spirited primary against Bernie Sanders. She crushed him. She crushed him. The, 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 the center of our party is the same, and it's true of Republicans as well, I believe. I believe that ultimately what Donald Trump did in 2016 was he staked out kind of a centrist. Sure, oh, he, I've always said that. Right. So sure, he had some positions that seemed, oh, my God, he's really out there. The answer is no. He basically had this kind of common sense thing. And by the way, one of those issues was guns. Right. If you remember, he was fairly moderate centrist well, no, he, on guns. He said that he wanted to make it much more difficult for the mentally ill to purchase guns. He uh, talked about the stupidity of the war in Iraq, talked about making prescription drugs more affordable, talked about not going along with Republican plans to privatize Social Security or reduce Social right. Security. Uh, where he was on trade was not where the mainstream of the Republican Party uh, was, uh, really with the exception of maybe immigration I mean, and taxes, I guess. It's tough to see where he ran in 2016 on a hard right campaign, substantively, not necessarily rhetorically. But um, you, let me, you, you alluded to the job of the mayor of New York City being non-ideological. You know, uh, Fiorella LaGuardia famously said there's no Democrat or Republican way to clean a street. And you said you, you used the word nonpartisan and then backed off that a little bit. Yet in 2003, when nonpartisan elections was on the ballot here in New York City for municipal elections, you opposed nonpartisan elections. If the job of mayor is cleaning streets, arresting bad guys, putting out fires, picking up garbage, what would be so bad with having nonpartisan elections in a city like New York? Well, I don't think it would be bad per se. I think that the parties perform a valuable role. And helping to helping people figure out the players on their on their scorecard. And here's what I mean. I mean, I think that that while it's not a perfect indicator, I think that 90 percent of the people within the sound of our voice would say, I am a Republican or I am a Democrat. And here's why. Okay, And it's because the way we organize ourselves and the way we have since the earliest days of our republic was by party. And I think that there's nothing about the, that party alignment that prevents us from having a moderate, a conservative, a liberal person. I just don't think that it. Well, that, but here's the difference, right? In um, in the South Shore of Staten Island, where I live, for instance, or on the or in the middle of Manhattan, where you live, you know, it, say the, the whoever the Republican is where I live is going to win that council district, that state assembly district. That leaves people like me who aren't registered Republicans and the 30 percent or so that are registered Democrats completely out of the most meaningful phase of the electoral process. Same thing with Republicans or people that are non-Democrats living in living where you live. Why shouldn't every voter have a say in the most in every meaningful stage of the process? Well, if you don't feel that you are committed to a party then why should you have a say to who the nominee of that party is? If you are committed to say if, – if you just want – look, I guess the way to look at it is that when the parties are choosing who their standard bearer should be, I don't see anything inconsistent saying, well, you should at least be a member of that party to, to, to well, have, have right. a say. Now, yeah. I mean, now, we do have a dynamic in a lot of places, and this is a larger conversation, about whether or not too few districts – 
let's start in Congress, but in too few districts, you described New York City, in too few districts are truly competitive between the parties. If you want to have a say in with the in, in how the Republicans choose their nominee or the Democrats choose their nominee, you have an opportunity to do that. You can register in those parties. If you just want to sit back and wait until they've chosen and then you get to weigh in on those, that's a decision that you can make. I will say I agree with you in one regard. There are fewer and fewer with each decennial census. There are fewer and fewer districts in Congress that are truly competitive districts. Mm-hmm. I think we're down to like five or six percent that are truly competitive, meaning that within they're within five percentage points of, of Biden winning um, or losing, meaning that they could flip either way. There are fewer and fewer of those districts because politicians draw districts to their own benefit. And I think that that's not great ultimately for democracy. Well, that's one of the reasons I find these uh, congressional lines so exciting is because it does bring back some competition for both the primary and the general. All right, well, we'll have you back in the future to talk about nonpartisan elections because there's two other issues that I want to make sure I get your take on before you leave. And uh, we are going to take some more calls. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Four open lines if you want to comment. By the way, before we get to these two issues, uh, you we talked a little bit about Rudy Giuliani. We were both at the uh, Tracy Morgan testimonial dinner. You sat four or five seats away from Rudy Giuliani. I talked about how when Eric Adams spoke, uh, Mayor Giuliani essentially, and I say this as a great admirer of Rudy Giuliani, he essentially stormed out uh, during Eric Adams's remarks. When you run into Rudy in a social setting, how did you guys get along these days? And uh, what was that like when he essentially walked out in protest of the mayor's while he was sitting at your table the other day? Well, we we get along pretty well. I mean, first of all, on a professional level, we both work here for John Katsimatidis. We both work for WABC. We're colleagues. Now we're in that that family. I don't see any. He has lots of detractors. I have lots of detractors. I see no particular reason why I should be another one of his. I have an opportunity to state what I believe. He has his his place where he and we also I can't believe I'm saying this. I, I am kind of a, I am now part of the elder statesman class in mm-hmm. the city. Like so we kind of know the same people. We have some of the common common stories to tell. Um, so we get along fine. And we even got along fine that that evening. We were we were joking about who was going to heckle de Blasio first <laughs> when he was a, acknowledged. Uh, the part of that story that you might not have observed from your table is that Giuliani was increasingly agitated by even the idea that Adams was there mm. um, to the point where he was doing a version of his radio show to those of us at the table of just kind of this this effing guy he should be off, you know, in the bowels of City Hall working on crime, not here, wearing a nice suit, giving out a, a play. I frankly believe that Mayor Adams can do both. He can show up at events like that, and he could also uh, fight crime. I think, and again, I'll let uh, 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 Mayor Giuliani speak for himself, I think there is a bit of a resentment on the part of Mayor Giuliani that he is not being called upon more by Eric Adams to help with this problem. And I'm in the camp that says it should be all hands on deck, that, that if I were mayor, there isn't anyone, even someone who is politically... Uh, uh, divisive as Mayor as uh, Mayor uh, uh, Giuliani is that you shouldn't tap resources where you can, and I think that there's a certain amount of fair resentment on the part. I think that that Giuliani's not wrong to have that feeling. He was steamed, was 
cussing under his breath, cussing over his breath. And then had and when I turned around, you know, I was on a different side of the table. I was facing the stage. When I turned around, he had just left. Um, but there was no doubt. There's no doubt about it. Julian, Mayor Giuliani has a burr in his saddle when it comes to Eric Adams. I think he really believes that he's that Eric Adams is not doing things the right way. But I had to leave to come work here that night. Uh, but I was looking for you to say goodbye or say hello and goodbye because it was kind of a crowded night before I came over here. And I noticed you left early. Did you leave early in protest of anything? I didn't protest anything. I told my son Jordan I would come home for the third period of Game uh, Six. That it was right. always at Game Five. It was the, the Ranger game was on. I told him I'd be home for the and and to be honest, you know. I, I I am no longer I'm no longer a tuxedo sitting for a four hour program kind of guys. <laughs> I was there out of uh, out of loyalty to the cause. I was there. I'm, I'm friendly with Arthur Adala, who who you you also know, who's the dean of the Friars Club. And uh, um, but no, I I was not storming out. I I basically left because I had a family obligation. And now uh, one issue very serious that I wanted to get your take on is we've seen the. Uh, epidemic is the only way I could think to determine uh, to of mass shootings uh, carried out in supermarkets, in schools. Very, very frightening. Uh, as a parent, you know, all those cliches are true that you view the world much differently now than you did prior to becoming a parent. And I think it's everybody's nightmare to think that some mentally ill 18-year-old can uh, uh, take a semi-automatic weapon and mow down six, seven, eight people at a place like a school where children are supposed to be safe. What do you think the reason for this is? And uh, well, let me start with that. I, I don't want to uh, offer any specific solutions before getting your take. What do you think the reason for the uptick in mass shootings in places like schools is? Well, it's been dramatically increasing over time, particularly the last couple of years. And who knows what effect COVID has had on it. But it's not a new phenomenon. I mean, look, disaffected, rejected, you know, 18-year-olds in high school who are angry at the world and looking for someone to blame is not probably not a new phenomenon. But the the combination of social media making making them renowned, giving them a path forward to be renowned, a way for social media to turn these kids into boiling cauldrons of resentments, and then ultimately, as 80, 90% of Americans recognize, the too easy availability of very, very dangerous weapons of death. Um, the cocktail is just now, it's clear. It's clear what's happening. You know, very rarely we have this notion that we're a divided country and that nothing ever happens. The issue of guns, though, is really a unifying issue. Um, when you have numbers of 90%, including 85% of gun owners who say there should be tougher background checks to prevent people from getting guns, that's not a consensus we have on many issues. You know, we we do have a clear consensus on what needs to be done. And um, that's the frustrating part about this, that many Americans look to their left, look to the right, used to seeing disagreement and see agreement on these things. And they're wondering why a law does not become, why a bill does not become a law. And it's hard to explain. But what's happening is, is clear. Look, if you look at the research around who does these shootings, they're teenage homicidal and suicidal, disaffected, generally rejected people that have access to guns who want some level of fame, who have been ginned up by other voices on the Internet. 
That's what we keep seeing again and again and again. 800-848-WABC. We're going to continue with Anthony Weiner in just a moment. Uh, v- very quickly, though, when we were going over the uh, subjects for the for the uh, our discussion today, you said you'd happy to talk about anything. The one area where you indicated a blind spot in terms of your knowledge and your expertise was the Godfather. So don't tell me you've never seen the Godfather. Oh no, I just I've listened to your program. I mean, <laughs> the, you you are like Rain Man level of like. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm obviously a fan. I'm I'm a uh, I'm I'm a big fan, like everyone else is, of the two of them. The third one, I could take or leave. Um, but I, you know, if we were going to take calls and start Got doing it. quizzes okay. and Got things it. like that, I would I would be out of my depth. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Hold the Godfather questions <laughs> and leave leave the cannoli questions as well. <laughs> this is the other side of midnight. We're going to continue with Anthony Weiner in a moment. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano here for a few more minutes with Anthony Weiner, former Democratic congressman, former Democratic candidate for mayor of New York City and our newest colleague here at uh, 77 WABC. Now, I notice you haven't played my promotional bumper thingy that uh, they, they made for me here. Yeah, uh, you know what? We, we, we'll, we'll, we'll have to dust that off, Matt. We'll, we'll dust that off before we before – you, you got a lot of mileage out of that this weekend. I, I feel like a lot of the P1s right. – uh, But this they, is – I'm hurt. in the big leagues now, being it's... on your program now <laughs> – Actually, people are listening, you know. Um. Uh, I got to ask you about Ukraine before we run out of time here. Um, we're seeing the the defense contractors, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, a bunch of other uh, weapons manufacturers. We're seeing their stocks, even when the stock market in general was going through a massive slide, we're seeing their stocks go up. Now, um, f- President Biden asked for $33 billion in aid for Ukraine. Congress said, no, 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 we'll give you 40. We'll give you 40. And that's a number that is far greater than we spent in almost every American conflict over the past 50 years in an annual uh, basis. Obviously, it's not Ukraine's fault that, uh, you know, Putin and Russia decided to invade. There are a lot of folks, myself included, to be honest, that thinks that uh, part of the saber-rattling in terms of America's involvement in Ukraine is being driven by the campaign contributions and the lobbying from these defense contractors. Am I out of my mind? You're not out of your mind. You're just wrong. I mean, it's look, again, it comes back to what I described earlier, this desire to have a tidy narrative that makes us understand the world sometimes it, particularly in foreign affairs, and this is the one observation I came away with when it came to foreign affairs when, as a member of Congress, we don't have eras of black and white, black hats and white hats. Now these things are – these foreign affairs entanglements give us a lot of bad options. And You can you pick know, Saudi Arabia or Iran. Right. right. I mean it's like you – these are not – these are not good choices. You know, like people say, well, you're turning to Venezuela. You're turning – you're asking Iran to, to pump more e- – Yes. I mean, these are not the kind of alliances you would ever want. You never have to make peace or make, you know, with countries that you agree with. This is, at the end of the day, a miscalculation of, of by Russia, by Putin, 
about this overarching sensibility that he has about unifying the old USSR, and we had to decide what to do about it. And I want to say, as unpopular as Joe Biden is in the country and probably with your listeners, the fact that we have brought together or helped to hold together this coalition of, of nations that extended even further within the last 12 hours where Europe, European nations came to an agreement to not buy Russian oil any further – these types of coalitions ultimately have isolated Russia even more and, God willing, in the long term, make us a safer world because I think Putin's learned the lesson that you can't just go do this. But in terms of, of you know, why, why are weapon stocks up right now? Because the people who are investing in stocks are looking like everyone else is. What's left that seems like a safe investment? What's left that seems like it's a – and we also – the market overreacts wildly to kind of, again, these narrative ideas. So let's take a look at you know, the, the market. You didn't ask me about this. The market has been plummeting recently. It's because a lot of these tech stocks like like Netflix and Peloton and everything else, we said, oh, in the age of COVID, people are going to be buying these mm. products. They'll be flying off, off the shelves. COVID's over. Right. But yes, that's all true, but that doesn't mean we're never going to go to movies again. Look at how well the, the, that Tom Top Cruise movie right. is, is doing. So I, I think that, yes, there might be a reason for people to invest in those stocks, but it is certainly not driving um, how members of Congress and the administration act. A couple of days ago, Henry Kissinger turned 99, not considered an isolationist by any means. He said uh, that he thinks Ukraine is going to have to cede some territory to Russia. Is that an analysis that you agree with? Do you think uh, Kissinger's I, right? I believe it's up to Ukraine, but I'm not sure how that would work. I mean, it, it, uh, well, I guess the easy solution is, you know, they stop disputing Crimea and the Russian populated areas of the Donbass, the, they can be these right, independent but, Russian aligned republics. But isn't that – didn't you just say a couple of sentences about why Kissinger's analysis is wrong? You know, you can say, OK, well, Crimea and then Donbass, and so you say to the Ukraine, well, if only you give up this section of your country. The other problem is, unlike Crimea, is – is the Donbass section, they don't consider themselves Russian. They might be Russian-speaking, might be closer to it, but, but they, uh, you know, that, that, that would be basically a, 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 a part of the country that would be in a state of civil war going on, irrespective of what the Ukrainian government deal that they might have done. I don't know what deal there is to be done, but it's certainly not for Henry Kissinger or for me or for you to say it's for the people of Ukraine. Well, and, you know, it is interesting, though, that we've seen all these stories about how great the Ukrainian military has done in terms of fighting the Russians, but then we're told with the other breath that unless we pass this military aid package to benefit the Ukrainians, then it all goes up in the whiff of smoke. It does seem like the, the pro-Zelensky factions in the American halls of government do sort of want to have it both ways, that Ukraine's doing great, Ukraine's doing great, but we have to give them $40 billion. Well, one thing I would say that I am very suspicious of Ukraine's doing great, Ukraine's doing great. I, you know, one, one thing that we have learned in these moments, there there is a, a little bit of propagandizing going around and a little bit of psyops going on around, you know, is Putin sick or how are the Ukrainians doing? I, I, I don't know. I'm no longer in Congress. I'm no longer getting these briefings. But to some degree, it has to be we've invested 
all of these resources and it's getting us somewhere. The other narrative you would hear from the White House, oh, we've 80, $80 billion. If only we did another $40 because it's not being successful. They have to argue that it's been successful. I'm dubious, not because I think it's not true, but because I, I don't have a really good source of this information. All right. Uh, we're going to try and squeeze in as many calls as we can. I'm going to go to people in the order they've been holding. The only thing I would ask everybody that's on hold is please, uh, if you have a comment or a question, just keep it as brief as possible so we can get to as many folks as we can. Let me go first to uh, Mike in uh, New Hyde Park. Hello, Mike. I understand the appeal of electronic cars. However, the batteries require rare earth materials and are highly toxic upon disposal. And furthermore, the, the very electricity that powers them is generated by fossil fuels. So frankly, from the so-called green point of view, I don't see the benefit. I know you're up against the clock. I'd like to respond if possible. If not, it's okay. Those are both reasonable criticisms. Technology is improving on all of those fronts, and they use uh, uh, combustion engines are still a big contributor to global climate change. Mike, uh, we'll have you back, and we'll have the congressman back to do electric cars in the future. Neil on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Anthony, you said that uh, you studied Hunter Biden's laptop and you didn't find any connection to the president. How did you get access to his laptop? I I, I studied – well, I just study his la- – well, recently, actually, his laptop has become available. I, I, uh, I read Miranda Devine's book. I read all the documents that have been released by the New York Post, all the documents that were in the public domain. Oh, so you, you believe that Belinsky was a liar when he, when he testified under oath? Uh, uh, Biden he, he, he didn't testify under oath. The Fox News believes he's a liar. The Wall Street Journal believes he's a liar, and so do I. Okay. Well, one other thing, Anthony, if sure. you don't mind. Sure. You, you, you said that um, uh, you're responsible for the uh, for de Blasio becoming mayor. De Blasio was the Blasio mayor, but, I mean, he didn't do what you did and go to prison for it. You really think you'd have a chance up against de Blasio after what you've done? Oh, in that – I was saying in that congressional seat. I don't think I'd beat him from – well, maybe I would beat him for mayor. I was just saying – I was commenting on that new 10th congressional district. Uh, de Blasio is polling terribly there. Okay. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Neil. Much. Neil on Long Island. Very quickly, Neil. My God. I've been holding for two hours. Uh, I called about an issue that I thought would be of keen interest to you, and that's the Alaska primary on August 16th. Alaskan voters approved a ballot measure in 2020. Right. Top four. Which, uh, top four. Which right. Has been upheld by the Alaska Supreme Court. Mm-hmm where they have to declare themselves as either affiliated with a political party or as undeclared or as nonpartisan. And the four candidates who get the most votes go to the general election in which they use ranked choice voting to determine the winner. The key here is that in the primary, all the voters vote in a single primary, be they Republicans, Democrats, independents, it doesn't matter. No longer is there this traditional primary in which many candidates vote in a, uh, run in a single party and can get elected with maybe 15% right. of the vote. Uh, and the reform aims to increase the likelihood yeah. that the candidates... So, so what's your question, Neil? Exactly. Well, I wanted to know how you felt about top, this. Top I, four. I'm this is a, a movement. I've got to say I'm fascinated by it. I, I think that with this scenario, I think there's a good chance that Sarah Palin does not win. And I think it, it, it what, what, he descri- what Alaska is doing is a combination of what you and I spoke about before. You still get the party affiliations. But you, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that your party is yeah. going to go to the finals. I, I've talked about that a little. I have some issues with that. I, I mean, I wish they'd just use ranked choice voting from the beginning and save the cost of a second election. But uh, other reasonable people can disagree. Mark is in the Bronx. Hello, Mark. 
Yeah, I have to say to Mr. Wainer, um, I try not to like you, but I really like you, and I can listen to you and Frank all night. You seem to be a pretty decent guy over a past, besides what went on in the past. Um, what's liberals' obsession with criminals? Why don't you guys like to blame criminals for crime? Why don't you want them in jail? I, bl- I don't I, get that. I, you keep saying guns, 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 but criminals are the problem. Bad guys with guns are the problem, not good guys with guns. Mark, let me so let the congressman respond here because well, we're just I, got I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the kind words, Mark, um, and I'll come back anytime that, that, that Frank in, invites me. I'm, get, I'm getting some, some wind in my sails here. I, I think criminals should go to prison, and I think that they should be held accountable for their deeds, just the same way I was. And uh, f- uh, we'll squeeze in one more here. Audrey, we'll make you our last uh, last caller to Anthony Weiner. Hello. Thank you, Frank. And uh, Mr. Weiner, what, what is your take on um, this redistricting that abruptly happened with the congressional lines in uh, New York State, where it gives, um, seems to me Republicans more weight? What do you think about that? I, th- I think I appreciate it, Audrey. I think that redistricting happens every 10 years. It's in the Constitution. I'm glad that we do it. I think the way the Democrats try to grab, they they were piggish about it, and we probably should have had lines that were better for Democrats but got thrown out because they went against the will. The the people in 2015 said they wanted nonpartisan districting, and my Democratic colleagues ignore that, and now they're paying for it. All right. uh, Covered a lot of ground there in the last two hours. There's still uh, pages of stuff that I didn't get to. We're just going to have to have you back in the future. Uh, By the way, one thing uh, you mentioned, Nancy Pelosi earlier, her husband got uh, in in trouble for this DUI. I I know he's got a lot of money. If you have that kind of money, why would anyone not have a driver all the time? That's one thing I can't understand. As someone that has known at least one of those Pelosi's, any insight into As that? As someone who takes the M15 select bus to get here, I, I'm not really much on I, I actually know him. I know him. I've met him a few times. He seems like a nice enough fellow. I, I, um, I, I don't think anyone should drink and drive, period. All right. Uh, well, certainly good advice. All right. Anthony Weiner, you can hear him every Saturday at 2 p.m. on the Anthony Weiner Show. You can listen to him battle Curtis. From 3 to 4 every Saturday. And uh, you can hear him periodically on the Cats at Night show. I hope you had fun. This was a lot of fun. I'd love to do it again. I'm serious about that. Anytime you want. You want to email me. um, You want to send me. I'm getting both praise and hate mail right now. If you want to pile on, you can email me. Frank.Moreno at WABCRadio.com. And I'm at at WienerWABC at Gmail. WienerWABC at Gmail.com. Frank.Moreno at WABCRadio.com. Coming up in a minute, we will do commendations because... We missed Monday's show for Memorial Day. A lot of people that deserve a pat on the back. I'll tell you my list. And then we'll take your calls and talk cigars a little bit later as well. A lot to get to. We're going to get to it all. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until then, keep asking questions.